Good morning. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Nehemiah chapter 11. And it's good to see you here uh, this morning. It's good to be back, um, back in the United States. We were in Ecuador this past week, and uh, there was there's a ministry um, down in Ecuador um, that is uh, run by a couple, Gary and Dina Pate, Pate Ministries, in a coastal village there in Ecuador where we spent our week, me and a small team, uh, checking out a potential um, ministry opportunity. And I look forward to sharing more about that in the future. I'm not going to get too deep into it right now, but it was just really cool to see how God's working there. And uh, we will uh, be sensitive to God's spirit as we move forward and prayerful about how we may uh, partner or support that ministry in the future. But it was just uh, awesome to see uh, God at work. And again, I look forward to sharing more about that um, in the future. I also appreciate Ben uh, filling in last week, uh, bringing the word. And it's just I'm grateful for uh, a church uh, where we have uh, just men uh, in our church who can step into the pulpit and to preach, uh, proclaim Jesus. And thank you for doing a great job, brother. Uh, so this week and next week, we're going to be landing the plane in our study of Nehemiah. All right. So this morning, we're going to cover uh, two chapters, chapters 11 and 12. But I want to give a quick review of where we've been in this study. All right. So Nehemiah uh, is at the right hand of a Persian king, King Artaxerxes. And he hears about Jerusalem. He is a Jew. He hears about Jerusalem, uh, being uh, the walls around Jerusalem being in ruins. And he gets deeply grieved and burdened about this. He feels the glory of God is at stake. He spends several months praying about going and uh, leading a rebuild project on these walls. And finally, he approaches the king, uh, who he works for, and he takes the risk and he asks for permission to go and to lead this project in Jerusalem. And the king not only grants his request and says he can go, he also says he's going to fund, the Persian Empire is going to fund the entire project. And so the first seven chapters of Nehemiah are chronicling the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah. And despite all the opposition that they face, we've seen that God's been faithful, that the people of God have persevered, and this wall gets finished. And then we get into chapter 8 through 10, and we discover that the main purpose of all of this isn't the rebuilding of the wall, but the spiritual restoration of a people. So instead of immediately just throwing a big party to celebrate the finish work of this wall, the people of God put their tools down and the main tool for spiritual restoration in somebody's life is picked up, which is God's word, and they begin to read it. They begin to study it. They begin to meditate on it. They begin to rejoice in it. And as they read it, what happens is their sin becomes exposed and they begin to confess sin. They begin to repent of sin. They begin to get right with God and revival begins to break out among the nation. And then in the last verse of chapter 9, and in all of chapter 10, we see the people of God rededicating their lives to God. We see this covenant renewal, which is a good thing to do in our relationship with God. It's kind of like in marriage. Every once in a while, it's good. Uh, every once in a while, to look at your wife and just in a fresh way say, you know what, I take you, whether rich or poor or sick or healthy, or whether you're in the mood to watch football games or to watch a Hallmark Christmas movie, I love you no matter what. All right, through it all, good days and bad days, as long as we both live, I commit my life to you. I'm yours. It's good and healthy to renew your promises, and that is what we do in our relationship with the Lord. And that's what the nation of Israel is doing all throughout chapter 10 in their relationship with God. And then after all the spiritual things were set in place, 
and they spiritually are refocused, now they're ready to party. Now they're ready to dedicate this finished wall to God and to celebrate what the Lord has done. And that's where we're at in chapters 11 and 12 of Nehemiah. So stand with your Bibles open. I'm not going to read both of these chapters in their entirety. I'm going to read a portion from each one. So follow along. Verse 1, chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin. And if you keep reading in chapter 11, you're going to see the sons of Benjamin listed. You're going to see the sons of Judah listed. You're going to see the religious leaders in Jerusalem. A lot of difficult names to pronounce. I'll save you from that, all right? Then down in verses 25 and 26, or 25 actually through 36, we find these various villages located outside of Jerusalem where it's saying that God's people were living. Uh, Then beginning in chapter 12, all right, we find a lot of other names. All right, this, these names listed of people who were among the first wave of exiles who returned to Jerusalem back under the leadership of Ezra. So a lot of names listed here. I will spare you the reading of all of those names this morning that are really difficult to pronounce. Then pick up with me in chapter 12, verse 27. All right, chapter 12, verse 27. In the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought... At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nidophathites, also from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates uh, and the wall. Then I brought, Nehemiah's talking, the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hushiah, and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, and Ezra, and Meshullam, and Judah, and Benjamin, and Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain priests with the trumpets and Zechariah, the son of Jonathan. Now, there's a normal name, finally, all right? There's a name that I can say. <laughs> son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph. And his relatives are listed there as well. Pick up with me at the end of verse 36. And Ezra the scribe went before them. The fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east and the other choir, those who gave thanks went to the north and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshanah and by the fish gate and the tower of Hanel and the tower of the hundred and the sheep gate and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard so both choirs of those gave thanks stood in the house of God. And I, and I and half of the officials with me and the priests who are listed there. Uh, and I began to read at the end of verse 42. And the singers with them sang with Jezreel as their leader. And here it is. And they, rejo- and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. 
for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Would you have a seat as I pray? God, we thank you for your word. God, we have confidence that this is your word. As we are opening this book this morning, we believe that this is inspired by you, that these are literally your words for us to hear that are profitable, that are useful for us. It's your desire that you use your word this morning to rebuke us, to encourage us, to instruct us in righteousness. And God, we pray that you would do just that by the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us the eyes to see this morning. Give us spiritual ears to hear. Do a work in our hearts that only you can do. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. With a text like this, a lot of details here, a lot of names here, it's easy to get fixated so much on the details that you miss the main point. I do want us to notice some details as we move through this text this morning, but I don't want us to miss the overarching truth that these two chapters are declaring loudly and clearly this morning, and this is it, the Lord is worthy. The Lord is worthy of it all. And I'm going to give you three truths that are connected to that overarching theme. Number one is this, the Lord is worthy of our lives. The Lord is worthy of our lives. Notice what's going on here at the beginning of chapter 11 with the decision of whether or not to live in Jerusalem. All right, so it's important that we understand the setting in Nehemiah uh, chapter 11 as it opens up. All right, the rebuilt uh, wall of Jerusalem was completed in 445 B.C., But even after the wall was complete, we read in Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 4 that the city was pretty empty. The people of God evidently preferred to live outside of the walls of this holy city. Probably for many of the same reasons some of you maybe don't like to live in uh, the city areas, right? Land, a little more space, more peace, more quiet. For them, it was less danger. If somebody wanted to attack God's people, they're definitely going to probably attack the heart of the city of Jerusalem. But it's important for God's glory that His holy city be populated with God's people. Worshiping God there. Serving God there. Praising the one and only true God there. People were needed there in order to protect the city from potential invaders. People were needed there to tend to the temple of God in the city where the presence of God dwelt. Also consider how bad this looked to pagan nations around Israel who had seen them work really hard to rebuild this temple, who had seen them work really hard to rebuild these walls, but nobody wants to live within the walls of the city. It was important for God's glory that Jerusalem be populated with God's people. And you'll notice at the beginning of chapter 11 there, verses 1 and 2, that the leaders of the people, they had to live in the city. Right? You'll notice that one out of ten people were drafted to live into this, in the city. And then in verse 2 it tells us, and this is something I would circle in your Bible, I would make note of. At the end of verse 2 it says that some willingly offered to live in the city. But what's happening here is God's holy city is being filled with God's people for God's glory. To be a witness among the nations. Nehemiah understands that this has always been God's plan. And that's why he's continuing to press this issue of repopulating the city of God with the people of God. Now I'll stop there and say this. We need that same kind of heart for the city that God's placed us in. It's become a little bit of a joke, hadn't it? To kind of hate on Jacksonville. And I kind of get that. You know, sometimes you look around things aren't as they should be. People can kind of knock on Jacksonville. But I'm going to tell you, you're part of a church here. That loves this city. We believe that God has placed us in this city for a purpose. 
We believe God has placed us in this specific location, in this community, to be a rescue boat, not a cruise ship, but a rescue boat that's outwardly focused, that comes here to fuel up and then scatters and goes into this community to spread a life-changing message of the gospel that's changed our lives and going to change the life of anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, we impact our city in a gospel way in a number of ways. All right, we impact the city by, by moving here into the city like so many of us have done and raising our kids here in the city, raising our kids in this church and training up kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, kind of raising little armies of disciples who themselves will get burdened about this city coming to Jesus. We impact our city by seeing the street that God's placed us on as our mission field. We impact our city by seeing the workplace where we go each day as our mission field. It happens through churches like ours getting burdened with a, with a heart for Christ and then a heart for their city because Jesus has a heart burden for the broken in this city and then being radically committed together on mission for Christ. Now, there's a lesson here in Nehemiah about what it looks like to be radically devoted to the mission of Christ. Did you see it? Did you catch it as we read it? It's found in the example of those people who are willing to move into the city, who willingly moved in. Now, we know the leaders, they, they're there, and hopefully, for, surely for good reason, but they, they have to be there. That's their job. They're, they're in the temple. They're working. But what about the... And then there's those leaders who were drafted, right? One out of ten. They were drafted to go live in the city. But what about those who willingly gave up their plans to move into the city of Jerusalem for God's glory, for the advancement of His kingdom? What a, what a powerful example of what it looks like to be radically devoted to the mission of God. But I want you to notice something. What inspires me most about their example is the truth that they're willing to live a life surrendered to God, even if it means living that surrendered life for the rest of their life in complete obscurity. Let me ask you this this morning. Are you willing to serve the Lord even if it means that you're totally unseen and unnoticed in this world? See, I think there's an important lesson right here with lists like this that we see in Nehemiah. Nehemiah's covered with lists, isn't it? There's lists of names all over Nehemiah. Like the list that we see right here in chapter 11 and chapter 12. There's lists like this all over the Old Testament. There's lists like this of people's names in a lot of Paul's letters. At the beginning of his letters, at the end of his letters. Lists of people's names, names about, of people that we know nothing about. People essentially forgotten in history. Look at all of these names in these lists. You won't find these names anywhere else in the pages of Scripture. All that we know about them is that they lived during this time, that they served the Lord with their lives during this time, and now they're forgotten in history. But not forgotten by God. Let me ask you, is that truth right there enough for you to serve God with all of your life for the rest of your life? See, there's a temptation in all of us, isn't there? even in the context of a church like this, to serve God simply because we want to be seen. Motivated to serve God with a heart that wants the applause of men. You know, Jesus warns about that in Matthew chapter 6. He says, if that's your motivation to serve me, if that's your motivation to serve God, getting attaboys and getting pats on the back, well, you better enjoy that reward while it lasts. Don't expect some type of reward in eternity for the work that you're doing in my name. So how do I identify, you know, whether or not my heart is off kilter like that? 
Well, one way is when you do something and you serve in some way and don't get recognized about what you did in the way that you feel like you need to get recognized for what you did. You get mad. You sulk. You feel sorry for yourself. If if I do something for Christ and then stand back and wait for some kind of particular response, well, I did that thing to be seen by men. I did that thing to receive the applause of men. But let me tell you, on the other side of that, if you do something and you feel fulfilled just in knowing that you served or you taught that lesson or you met that need or you did that project and you did it for the glory of God, for an audience of one. And hey, if a nice word of encouragement comes along, that's nice. Boy, that is nice to get that. But the greatest thrill for me is to serve the Lord simply because I love serving the Lord. And I know he sees what I do and he knows my heart. And that's enough. If that more describes why you do what you do, then you know you're serving Jesus with your heart in the right place. By the way, this is not an excuse not to encourage people, by the way. Well, you're supposed to be doing stuff for the glory of God. I don't need to encourage you. I don't need to give you any encouragement. What does it say in 1 Thessalonians 5.11? Paul tells the church, encourage one another and build one another up. I'm telling you one word of sincere encouragement to somebody can lift their spirits in such a way it can cancel out 10 ugly, critical, negative words of discouragement they've received that same week. Make no mistake, encouragement is a great thing that God can use. It can lift a spirit. You just have to be careful that it's not what ultimately motivates your service. You got to be careful it's not what's fueling your service. We got to be careful we're not fishing for encouragement and flattery words to feed our ego. That's not the point of encouragement. In our home, we had a moment where we missed the point of encouragement recently, all right? So we have family worship in our home since the kids were little. Uh, we have something called the encouragement couch. So we'll read the Bible, we'll uh, pray together, and then with our kids, each of them will take their turn on the encouragement couch. So they have to stand up on the couch, and they've got to take encouragement. Can't be silly, that's a rule. You can't deflect, you just got to sit there and take it. So we're trying to practice 1 Thessalonians right there where Paul says, practice building one another up. And so the, ki- the two oldest ones, they don't stand on the couch anymore. They sit on the couch, all right? So, but Max still stands on the couch. And so recently, Max was standing on the couch, taking his turn on the encouragement couch. And we went around the room, and you know, and I can't remember exactly what we shared that night. It was probably like, I, th- I like you, Max, because you shared your toy with me yesterday, and you're really nice. I like you, Max, because you're funny, and you have a really epic mullet, and that looks really, really good. I don't know. We went around the room, and people are sharing encouragement, all right? And so everybody shares these encouraging words, and Max is, just, Max is sitting there taking it in. And usually that's it. But that night, Max raised his hand, standing up on the encouragement couch, and he said, Hey, that was really good. I appreciate you guys sharing that. But I'd just like to add a few more things that I really like about myself. So then we need to have a little Bible study on humility and the point of encouragement. What's the point of encouragement in our life? As believers, it's something that God can certainly use to lift our spirit, put some fresh wind in our sails. Listen, but it's not something we fish for to feed our egos. It can't be what ultimately fuels what we do for God. You say, well, what if I feel discouraged? What if I feel forgotten? What if I feel overlooked? You remember in a fresh way this morning that you're never forgotten by God. That you serve a God who does not overlook you. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work 
and the love you have shown for His name in serving the saints. You remember this morning that you're accepted by God. That because of what Christ has done, you are loved by God, deeply loved by God who loves you and who loves and He notices ordinary, humble, daily obedience. And you let lists like this inspire you. Full of people who served the Lord and were fueled to serve Him simply because they believed that He is worthy of their life. And they offer up their life to Him in sacrificial, radical ways. They appear for a moment in Scripture and then they vanish. And in a way, is that not what God asks of most of us? To give Him our life during our brief time on this earth and then to disappear. And that doesn't sound quite right kind of in our Western the way we've been conditioned to think in self-absorbed ways. But I'm telling you, there's a crazy amount of satisfaction in your soul that you experience when you play that kind of role in God's eternal redemptive story as squint print support cast in a story where Jesus is the star. That's what God asks of us. And we leave the recognition and we leave the influence up to Him. So, He's worthy of our lives. Number two, He's worthy of our praise. Notice the people's praise beginning in verse 27 of chapter 12. It says, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites and all their place to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, with singing, with cymbals, with harps and lyres. This is a very lively celebration. You've got singing that's mentioned eight times here in this chapter. You've got thanksgiving that's mentioned six times. You've got rejoicing that's mentioned seven times. You've got musical instruments mentioned three times here. But all of this noise and this big party and this big event and this big celebration is all about one thing, the Lord. The people are doing all of this to recognize that it's because of the Lord that these walls have been built. It's not ultimately about their hard work or their ingenuity. It's ultimately about God, about His work, about His glory. And they throw this big celebration to make that point clear and loud, literally. Loud and clear, literally. The Bible says that Nehemiah appoints these two big great choirs to make a lot of noise about this. One went one way with Ezra, the other went another way with Nehemiah. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Nehemiah makes it a point that he brings these big choirs up on the wall. Does that bring back anything if you really... I uh, can remember early on in this study when he was facing some enemies as it was all in rubble and those enemies come by and start to try to get in their heads and Tobiah, remember he was kind of the sidekick of the main enemy of God and he throws out some lame trash talk and he's like, yeah, I don't know how to build a wall. You're going to build that wall and a little fox go up and touch it with its paw and make it come down. And it's really hit right. Do you remember that? Well, here's Nehemiah calling these choirs to come up on that wall to march around it. If I'm Nehemiah, I'm going, hey, get up here. Where's Tobiah? What you think about that, Tobiah? A little mic drop moment, right? But Nehemiah is more sanctified than I am. He doesn't do that. The point of all this marching and singing and praising is to point the hearts of God's people and the eyes of everyone who is watching to the Lord. Look at what the Lord has done. These two choirs, they march around the city of Jerusalem in different directions. In verse 43, it says they reach the temple together. And it says there in the temple they offer sacrifices to the Lord. And it says they rejoiced in the Lord. Verse 43, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And look at the result. And look at the end of verse 43. Nehemiah writes, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I love that. It's almost like the sound that you're going to hear on a Saturday with a packed football stadium full of people. 
And you could be in the streets surrounding that stadium and hear at times the sound of joy coming out of that stadium, spilling out of that stadium. That's kind of what's happening right here. This loud noise is spilling out of Jerusalem, a noise that's unmistakable. It's a sound of joy, and it made a great impact. I pray that would be true of us. I pray that if people would spend some time with us, I pray that next Sunday evening when we're out here and we got thousands of people coming through our campus, that as they interact with us, as they see our faces, as they talk with us, as they see how we treat one another, as they are served by us, as we're seeking to be the hands and feet of Jesus, I, I pray that in their minds, they might not even be able to put words to it. They might not even put their, be able to put their finger on it, but they, they would think things and say things like there's something about those people down there. There's something different about those people down there at that church we went to last night. Down there at Schindler Drive Baptist Church, man, I don't know what it is, but there's something different. And may it be the joy of the Lord that they sense in us. May our joy as it happened there in Jerusalem, may our joy in the Lord be heard far away in our community. People who are joyful. You know, joyful people are fun people to be around. Critical negative people who always are seeing the glass half empty, are not so fun to be around. You know, joy is contagious. And that's what's happening in Jerusalem. The joy of the Lord has gripped their hearts. And they're praising God. And it's infectious. People are noticing. It's attractive. And may that continue to mark our church. If in order for it to mark our church, it's first got to mark our hearts. And then it's got to mark our homes. And then we bring it into the house of God. Praising God with our lives. Praising God as we see here at the end of this chapter with our resources. They're praising God with their pockets. They're cheerfully giving to fund the mission of God. They're praising Him through singing with joy. With joy in their hearts that should occasionally show up on our face. Just saying. May our joy lead others around us to find joy in the Lord themselves. Now, how do we get there? We've got to understand what stirred the people of God that day to praise Him like this. Well, what they're doing is they're living out Psalm 145, 1 through 5. It says this, the psalmist says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. I will meditate. Why are these people rejoicing like this on this day on this wall? Where is all this celebrating coming from? Where's all this singing coming from? Where's all this joy coming from? Where's all this praise coming from? From a people who are genuinely gripped by what God has done. And not just what He's done, but who He is. That's why we worship. That's why we praise. The roars of celebration heard in Jerusalem on that day was a genuine response to what God had done. They're celebrating the faithfulness of God for His people. They're celebrating the truth that they're gripped by that from captivity in Babylon to this point right here back in Jerusalem with this rebuilt temple and these rebuilt city walls that God has not forsaken His people. And here they are standing on top of this wall very mindful of this truth. And what is their response? Praise. And their praise is full of joy for what God has done and who He is. Even though their circumstances really still are not all that great. He's still to them greatly to be praised. Circumstances in Jerusalem still aren't all that great. It's still not what it once was. 
Brandon did a great job when he preached on the third chapter of taking us back and showing Jerusalem when it was what it once was in all of its glory under the leadership of King David and Solomon. It's still not even a fraction of that. Still not, an, still not enough housing. Still not enough people. Still very vulnerable, militarily speaking, to the powerful pagan nations that surrounded them. And yet they celebrate with praise and joy in their hearts. How? Because their hearts are fixated on what God has done and who He is. Even in a difficult place, they can praise. They're praising Him because of how faithful He's been. And the reason they can praise Him with hope in their heart right now is because they know because He's been faithful to them up to this point, He will not stop being faithful. So here's my my plea to you this morning. Even if your circumstances are not good right now, He is worthy of your praise. Even if you're experiencing challenges in life right now, lift your eyes in that moment of difficulty and dwell on the faithfulness of your God. Think about what He's done. Think about who He is. That right there is really important. Because it may, the reason why it's important for some of you to praise Him for who He is, because it's difficult for you to see right now what He's doing. You're like, you, y'all keep telling me to, to, to count my blessings. I'm having difficulty finding blessings to count. And in that moment, what I'm telling you, just praising for who He is. You're my ever-present help in time of need. You're merciful. You saved me. You're gracious. You're all-powerful. Oh, you're faithful. As I look back over my life, you've never failed me. You've proven yourself faithful time and time again. You are a promise-keeping God. As bitter as life feels right now, praise Him for who He is in that storm. And I promise you, that that hope-filled kind of praise will change you. It's that powerful. There's evidently a berry, that like a berry, like on a bush that you eat. Not that you needed me to explain it that way. All right, You're smart people. That's only found in certain regions of Africa. That's called a taste berry. Have you heard of this? You can look it up. And this berry, it, it, it tastes pretty good but the power in the berry is this that when you eat this certain kind of berry it's called a taste berry when you eat it everything for up to an hour after you eat it anything you eat will taste good no matter how sour the food you are the the food that you're eating is no matter how bitter the food you're eating uh, tastes you eat it after that taste berry for up to an hour and it will actually make it taste sweet and pleasant some of you are like I needed that at a restaurant I ate it recently right or I needed that when my mom was making me eat vegetables when I was little, right? And this is my point. And, and listen. Praise is like the taste berry of the Christian life. When you choose to praise the Lord for who He is, no matter how you feel or what you're going through, listen, it doesn't take it all away, but what it does is it tempers the sorrow and the sting and the sourness that's connected to the bad circumstance that you're in. That's why they can stand in the middle of a city that's still in bad shape and sing and praise God and sing with joy. Praise takes the sourness of sorrow that you're tasting and it, it, it alters your spiritual taste buds to where you can supernaturally begin to taste and experience the peace and the joy of God no matter what you're walking through. Right, to where you can sing when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, 
Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. The Lord is worthy of our life. The Lord is worthy of our praise at all times. And number three, the Lord is worthy of our service. So in chapter 10, that we just briefly explained, the people specific, we know they covenanted with God, right? They rededicated their life to God. But they specifically, if you read through that chapter, are covenanting with God and rededicating their life specifically to temple service. And here at the end of chapter 12, they, we didn't read in its entirety here, but what you see there is that they're keeping that promise. So they celebrate, and then we see them keeping this promise to dedicate themselves to temple service. And for that temple to function correctly, for that sacrificial system to function correctly, it took a, a, a group of people, various people with various gifts that were needed to offer up service to the Lord. Some served as priests, some served as Levites. There were some who sang, there were gatekeepers. It took the community, God's people, working together to fund the work of the temple. There was work to do. So as we read in chapter 12, verse 47, it says all of Israel. This is like an, an all-skate exercise. You know what I mean by that? Right? All hands on deck. Everybody on the floor. All Israel, it says, gave their daily portions, their resources, their money for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Everyone had a role to play. Now, how does that apply to us today? Because we're not, we don't have a temple that we're sacrificing animals in, offering them to God to cover our sins. But what God has given us is the church. He's given us this local assembly that we are to belong to. Listen, a lot of people will say, well, I belong to the Big C Church. I belong to the Universal Family of God, and I don't need to be committed to no church down the road. Be careful. God's word clearly explains that we are called to commit ourselves to a local expression of his family. To a local expression of his church that we call the local church. And let me ask you, how are you serving in your church? We have been served really well this morning, haven't we, by many? Bible Connect group leaders, kids ministry workers that are back there right now changing the diapers, little babies praying over them. Some back there teaching little ones, toddlers, verses. People making coffee this morning. Musicians have served us. Singers have served us. Ushers have served us. Many of you served yesterday at the Real Men's event. Did a wonderful job. Many of you will serve this Wednesday night. Many of you, many of you serve. But there's many of you who aren't. And I want you to, to know this. God is not called, did you know God's not called any of his disciples, not a single disciple, to be just a mere consumer? Not one. God has not called any of his disciples to just be a spectator and to come and enjoy the show on Sundays or Wednesdays. This is important what we do as we're gathering, but part of your discipleship process needs to involve moving beyond this gathering and connecting with a smaller group of believers, but also serving. Maybe this will help to understand why this is important. Church is not an event you attend. It's a family that you belong to. God calls us to commit to a local expression of His church, the family of God, to commit ourselves to one another. And one of the main things we're called to be committed to is to serve one another. If you're in this room and you've been born again, 
the moment of your second birth, at the moment of you receiving Christ, the Holy Spirit took up residence in your life and gave you a grace gift. Everybody's got at least once, a spiritual gift. One, it's a spiritual gift. And your responsibility is to discover that gift within the context of your local church. You can really discover that effectively within a, a Bible Connect group. And it's to discover it. We can help you do that and then to employ it. We cannot fulfill the mission that God's called us to as a local church called Chandler Drive Baptist Church without people discovering their unique grace gifts and employing those gifts and serving their community, but also one another for God's glory and for others' good and for our joy. He's worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our praise. And He's worthy of our service. Now, I was planning to end the sermon there. And I think that would be okay. But then, last night as I was reviewing my notes, something dawned on me that as good students of the Word should always dawn on us as we're reading the Old Testament, that all of this is meant to point us to the glory of Christ. Every page of the Old Testament is a shadow of the cross. But not just the work of Christ on the cross in the empty tomb and His ascending into heaven, but it moves beyond that. And here's what jumped out to me, because as you get to the end of the book of Nehemiah here, what we see is that the city of Jerusalem, sure, there's been restoration, the wall's up, the temple is up, but it's still not what it once was. It's still not what God intended for it to be. And in many ways, it's still a disappointment for God's people. But if you keep reading your Bible, you'll get to the cross, you'll get to the empty tomb, you've got to keep reading. Amen. And you're going to get to Revelation chapter 21. And you're going to see a new city there. That's where we are reminded of the hope of a new city. The hope of a new Jerusalem. That is beyond the glory of the former city of Jerusalem and all of its glory. Where God's people will dwell with Him forever and ever. Where we will offer our lives to Him fully forever and ever and ever. Where we will praise Him forever and ever and ever. Where we will serve Him for all of eternity. Listen to the way that John the Revelator, just a small portion of this, describes this city. And he carried me away. The angel carries John away in the spirit on a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed on the east Three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. In the wall, the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Look at verse 21. In the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Church, it's wonderful to read about Nehemiah. 
It's wonderful to read about this temple that's been restored and these walls that have been restored. But church, there is a greater city that is coming. There is a better city that's coming. Better walls. No temple because the temple is the Lord. This passage is pointing us to the future reality of the second coming of Christ when He will set up new heavens and a new earth. We are, do, you, do you realize this morning we are moving towards that day? That's why Peter said in light of that day to the church in 1 Peter 3.13 therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober minded set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's literally the same phrase that opens up the book of Revelation. Peter is referring to the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying listen don't get this wrong. I want you to fix your hope on that. You know what he's saying? He's saying that is real. This is a real thing. Jesus is coming. This is not theory. This is not pie in the sky by and by. This is what the Word of God says. As sure as you and I are in this room right now, as sure as you are sitting there listening to my voice right now, today could be the day that the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, that the voice of the archangel angel, and the trumpet of God will sound, and then the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the cloud, with the Lord, in the air, and we will be with Him forever and ever and ever. Now we can debate, uh, hey, we can debate on how that's going to look. We can debate on your eschatological positions. But something that is certain that we all need to agree on if we're going to be in fellowship together is that Jesus is coming back. And then, hey, in light of that, if that has truly gripped my heart, it changes everything in my life. If I'm living with a hope, a confident expectation of that reality, when I really wrap my heart around that glorious truth of Christ's return, that there's coming a day when He's going to reverse the curse, it's going to be completely undone, that there's a new city that's going to be built, that Jesus... Hey, Jesus is coming! Listen, we're not that kind of church a whole lot, but like, I want you to look at the person next to you and I want you to say, Jesus is coming. And I want you to look at the other person that you just ignored that time on the other side of you. And I want you to say, Jesus is coming. Hey, now look at me. 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 That's for real. That's not just churchy stuff. That's just not an emotional pick-me-up. That's not some kind of crutch we're leaning on to help us cope with the difficulties of life. Jesus is coming. He's going to build a new heaven and a new earth. And we will live in that new Jerusalem. And when we know that, when we know that He's coming, and we know how we're going to spend the rest of our lives and all of eternity, it will change the way you live your life in the present. In the present. It will change the way you manage your resources. Let me ask you, if you, if you knew Christ was coming back today, that changed the way you spend your day today. That ball ball game this afternoon wouldn't matter all that much, would it? That fantasy football lineup wouldn't matter matter all that much, would it? When I know he is coming, and I live with that hope and assurance of his glorious return, it changes me. It changes the way I see tomorrow. It changes the way I see today. It changes the way I plan my day and plan my future. It changes the way I think. And it motivates me in a fresh way to live for Him. To praise Him. And to serve Him. Because He is worthy of my life and my praise and my service. Let's pray.